Pastor Joey will be reading and sharing from Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. It's on page 1165 in the black uh, English Standard Bible in front of you. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, good morning. I'm Pastor Joey. Hey, if we have never been introduced, uh, please find me afterwards. Introduce yourself to me. I would love to get to know you and learn your name. I will promptly forget it because my brain doesn't work very well, but... uh, uh, I'll ask you again next week, so please introduce yourself. As I was getting ready this morning, I was looking for um, a missing bracelet or piece of jewelry or um, accessory. I'm not sure what you would call it. Uh, it was one I, I was given in 1998 uh, when I was in youth group in high school, and a bunch of other students were passing these bracelets out. They have four letters on them, WWJD. You guys remember these? How many of you wore them? Proudly. Yeah, oh, hands went down. Um, yeah, that's right. WWJD, what would Jesus do? It was a uh, sort of a grassroots movement that swept the country. It started, I don't know if you knew this, in Holland, Michigan. Pause for applause. Yeah, uh, another thing the Dutch gave us, so thanks, guys. And uh, it, it, was, it was a lady who wanted her youth group students to just to understand the moral imperative to live as Jesus lives. So she made these bracelets, started passing around, just swept the nation. The actual phrase, what would Jesus do, came from a late 19th, early 20th century book called In His Steps. It's uh, written by a guy who actually started the whole social gospel movement and gave some early definition to it. But he apparently got it from Thomas Akempis, from the imitation of Christ in the 15th century. What would it look like to imitate Christ? I don't know any of that when I was given the bracelet. Uh, but I wore it primarily because, well, everybody else was. But secondarily because I thought it was, you know, a pretty good reminder of what would it look like if Jesus lived my life? What would Jesus do if he had the life that I had? The funny part about it is how I answered the question. Because I've told you all a little bit over the last couple weeks of the kind of community that I was involved in, the community of faith that uh, I was maturing in, in in middle school and high school and into college. And so it was a community that would answer the question like that um, very moralistically. What would Jesus do? 
probably wouldn't date, probably wouldn't go to prom, wouldn't go to movies, would certainly never wear jeans while preaching, things like that. We, we had a very complex and ordered system of morality that uh, we kept track of for ourselves and for others because we were nice to people like that. And uh, that was how we, we could tell if we were doing what Jesus would do. We were basically keeping all of the, uh, the commands, keeping all of the, <clears throat> doing all the things we were told to do. Excuse me. It's kind of funny how the question, what would Jesus do, especially as we're considering what does it mean to be winsome towards the world, as people living a life like Christ in this world we're in now, as we're thinking about how do we posture ourselves to the world. It's funny how this question, what would Jesus do, tends to be answered by doing what we would already want to do. Have you ever noticed that? How easy it is when you're reading the Gospels, when you're reading the specifics of Jesus' actions to focus on the things that sort of resonate with you already and ignore the things or downplay the things that challenge you. If you listen to the stories we told about Jesus in the church in which I grew up, you'd think his entire ministry was flipping over tables and telling people they were sinners. And if there was any compassion, well, it was compassion directed at people who have already repented, people who already believe, people who are already, you know, on Jesus' side. So is there a way to look at Jesus' life and his mission and not focus on just the things that already resonate with us while downplaying the things that challenge us? Is there, as we think about entering into the world, ministering to the world, approaching and engaging the world around us, is there a way uh, to do this from the life and the mission of Jesus that isn't selective, that doesn't just give us permission to do what we already wanted to do? Well, I think there is, otherwise I wouldn't pose the question. And I think it's crucial for us to discover, as we want to be informed and winsome ambassadors for Christ in a secular age, it's crucial for us to discover this. Now, we're in the third and final part of this discipleship series that we're calling Flourish. We're focusing on our our winsomeness. What is our posture towards the world? We want to be informed and winsome ambassadors. What does it mean to be winsome? Last week, or two weeks ago, we started this by looking at Jeremiah 29, the famous uh, letter Jeremiah wrote to the exiles. By the way, if you were in first service and you heard me repeatedly say Jeremiah 23, um, I'm sorry. I'm correcting myself now, and you can stop telling me I got it wrong. Um, (laughs) I heard from a number of people. Anyway, Jeremiah 29, this letter Jeremiah wrote to the exiles in which he said, hey, work for, pray for the peace of the city that God has called you to. This is a radical idea. He gave them a story that made sense of that command, a 70-year exile. And then last week, we turned to 1 Peter 3. You remember in in Peter, Peter's first letter, the apostle Peter adopts this language of exiles and says, hey, this applies to the church now. We are exiles, citizens of the kingdom to come, living in this world now, and we're going to be different. But what kind of different? And we looked at his call, his appeal to us to be not hard or sharp, but soft in our difference. Maintaining, because of our, our, the strength of our God, maintaining our conviction about what we, we believe, but also having respect for the convictions and the beliefs of others. One author, I didn't quote him last week, but another author calls this prophetic civility. Speaking the truth, 
with gentleness and respect, not sacrificing one in favor of the other. Now, next week, we're going to look back again at Jeremiah 29 in the first half of the letter, and we're going to walk through the very specific ways that uh, Jeremiah exhorts these people to work towards and pray towards the peace of the city. But before we go to the practical how this works out next week, we need to find a model for engaging the culture that informs how it works out. See, we started with the story. What's, what's the story we're living And we try to define our difference from the world around us, and now we're looking at a model that helps us engage the world in the same way that Jesus did. That's why we're in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2, 1 through 11, Bob read it earlier. It's on page 1165. If you haven't turned there or didn't catch that, uh, that's, of course, the page number for the Bible underneath the seat in front of you. If you grabbed a Bible in another language, I can't help you with the page number there. You'll have to figure it out. Now, as we read through this passage, and we're going to pay particular attention to Philippians 2, uh, verses 7 and 8, we'll see that Jesus' mission, the way Jesus entered into and engaged the world, had three main movements to it. Three main movements, three steps. Uh, Steps sounds too linear because it all kind of happened at the same time, but three movements through which God in Jesus moved into the world. First, he pursued the world. Second, he identified with the world. And third, he offered life to the world through a sacrifice of love. In Jesus' mission, three main movements, he pursued the world, identified with the world, and offered life to the world through sacrificial love. This comes through in Philippians chapter 2. Now, before I jump in and start reading, just a quick summary of it. The first four verses of Philippians chapter 2 are Paul's appeal to the believers in Philippi to be unified. He says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from my love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, if, meaning because there is, complete my joy, have the same mind, have the same love, be in full accord and of one mind. Apparently, there was some division within the church, and Paul's saying, that is not the way the church is supposed to be. I want you to be unified. And then verse 5, he says, you know, come to think of it, this unity I'm asking for requires the kind of attitude I recall being an example for us and someone else that we all highly revere. Oh, in fact, we sing songs about that. That's verses 6 through 11, Jesus. And verses 6 through 11 then, because of their their sort of internal rhythm and rhyme structure, uh, the use of some words that don't show up in common speech, we're fairly certain this is an early creed recited by believers as a statement of faith or perhaps an early hymn sung in the churches. Paul is sort of coming at him and saying, I want you to be humble, you know, kind of like that song you guys sing all the time. Let's, let's act it out. Let's live it out. And that humility, if this perspective that is Christ can be adopted by them, will then result in the second half of the chapter in an outcome before the world, a transformation of their witness, if they do, like verse 14 says, all things without grumbling or disputing, if they're blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, they will shine as lights in the world. See, grasping the mind of Christ, the attitude of Christ, the mission of Christ results in a church whose witness shines, to use Paul's words, that is attractive, engaging, that holds out something of value to the world around it. 
So there's something in Philippians 2 that the church at Philippi and the church in Indianapolis needs to grasp in order to engage the world the same way that Jesus did. Let's dive into it, verse 5. Having this same mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. If you're reading from another translation, verse 5 may, something, may say something like, you should have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had, or you should have the same attitude toward one another that Jesus had. Well, what is that, that attitude? I think it's not just the respect, say, or the civility or the love that Jesus had for us, but it's the very attitude that drove him to engage the world in the ways we've outlined by pursuing the world, identifying with the world, and offering life through a loving sacrifice. Because of who Jesus was, and we're going to dig into this, he was able to move toward the world. As to the extent to which we emulate Christ in that way, we too will engage the world in the same way he did by pursuing it, identifying with it, offering life through a sacrifice of love. Look again at verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. Of course, the first and most important thing to notice from this passage is that in it, Jesus is called God. He's in the very form of God. He has the very nature of God. Being found in nature of God, other translations say. He existed in the form of God. It's the highest, the strongest, the most poetic explanation of who Christ is, I think, that we find in the New Testament, that Jesus is God himself, the second person of the Trinity, the same essence of deity is God, yet a distinct person. Jesus is not God the Father. He is not God the Holy Spirit. He is God the Son, one of three persons in one being that is God. We say this when we recite the creeds. Jesus being in the very nature of God, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, one in being or with the Father, or consubstantial with the Father, or of the same essence as the Father. Jesus is God, but it says in verse 6, even though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. Now, I've often wrestled with what that means and so has anybody who reads the Greek and studies it. It's, it's convoluted and complex. Uh, it's, it's, this is one of those verses. I have a list of verses and a list of movies and a list of books that I keep coming back to every couple of years, hoping that I've gotten mature enough to understand them. And with this verse, I'm not, but I read some good commentaries. And one of them, I think, nailed it, or at least gave an explanation that makes the most sense to me, said that when... When it says here in verse 6 that Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, <clears throat> excuse me, it's saying that Jesus did not take his position as an excuse to forsake a mission. In other words, he didn't hold on to his position as God selfishly and say, I don't have to deal with that. I'm God. You broke it. You fix it. You know, we've discovered if we leave our daughter alone in her playroom for anything longer than about seven minutes, it's just utterly destroyed. Toys out, things everywhere, a, a mess to be cleaned up. You can't walk in there barefoot. You know what I'm, I'm talking about. And of course, as, as dad, I could go and say, 
I pay for the house and you made the mess. You clean it up. And use my position as, as a way to uh, sort of get out of doing some work. Now, of course, I'm also teaching important life lessons, so don't get me wrong here. But you can see how it's, it's possible to take your position, whatever your position is, and use it as an excuse, use it a, a selfishly as a way of saying, well, I don't have to get involved. Jesus could have very well looked at us and said, I mean, me and God the Father and the Holy Spirit, we made it perfect and you messed it up, so fix it. But he didn't. He didn't count equality with God as something to be grasped, as something to be held onto as an excuse for not jumping in. You could say Jesus sacrificed his position because of a mission. He sacrificed his position in order to fulfill his mission. And his mission involved a pursuit. And emptying is the word Paul uses in verse 7. He emptied himself. Now, and right away, we kind of ask the question, well, what did Jesus empty himself of? And theologians debate, well, he emptied himself of this or the use of that, or maybe he emptied himself in this way or whatever. But I, actually, I think asking what did he empty himself of misses the point. The point is not that Jesus emptied himself of something, but that he emptied himself out of heaven onto earth. Jesus poured himself out of heaven onto earth into, it then goes to tell us, into the form of a servant. He emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. He didn't empty himself of anything. He emptied himself into something, into the form of a servant. And this emptying of himself out of heaven onto earth is the, the crucial first step of the mission. Without this, nothing else would happen. It's the step of pursuit, of pursuing the world. Now, of course, any good relationship starts with pursuit, right? When I was attempting to get Jenna to fall in love with me, uh, I was too socially awkward and shy to like, talk to her face-to-face. -face. So most of our conversations were over instant messenger. And I noticed every month or so, suddenly she would just never be online for a week or two weeks, or three weeks, and then she was back again, and we were talking for a month or so, and then she was offline again for another couple of weeks, and then we were back again. Well, I, I found out later she was offline when she was back together with her other boyfriend, the one we don't speak of. But uh, <laughs> I shouldn't say other boyfriend. That implies there were two at a time. That's not true. She was being very whole and pure, and when they were back together, you know, she wasn't talking to me anyway. But I kept pursuing Waiting, logging on every day. I wonder if she'll be online. And when she was, first thing, hey, how's it going? I haven't seen you in a while. What's up? You know, whatever. And eventually, my cyber stalking paid off. So <laughs> I got that going for me, which is good. Every relationship begins with pursuit. Somebody pursues. And eventually, hopefully, there's a mutual pursuing. But every relationship begins with a pursuit. And that's actually the, the story of the entirety of Scripture, is the story of God pursuing his people. Having made us, having put his people into a garden, into a paradise that was filled with the peace, the wholeness, the flourishing he designed for the human animal, the human machine to, to operate best within. Well, we rebelled against the peace and ran off, but God continually pursues 
Over and over again, we read in Scripture of God choosing his people, drawing his people to him, calling his people to him. In the Gospels, we read God loved the world so much that he sent his son. He pursued the world. So how does God move into the world? How does God engage the world? What's the first step in the mission, the model that Jesus employs to engage the world? It's pursuit. God pursues the world. Now, that should make us pause and think, how do I pursue the world? You know, I know we're, we're busy. I was reflecting on my schedule this last week, from home to work to home to event to home to something with friends, back home again, and then to church, and then, you know, we just keep moving around, and sometimes... Uh, I feel in my own life, I'm so busy driving past the world that I don't know how to pursue the world. Now, anytime I say world when I'm talking about application, I'm not talking about the whole world. It's very easy to get so interested in the whole world that we forget about everything right around us and our local world. So when I say, how do we pursue the world, you should just hear me saying, how do we pursue our world? How do we pursue our homes, our church, our schools, our workplaces, our places of leisure? How do we pursue our world? Or are we so busy driving past our world that we send our money across the world to feel better about not pursuing it here? The first step of the mission is to pursue, to step into, to, to run at the world to which God has called us. So if we're going to engage our world around us, we need to stop worrying so much about changing the world, worry more about impacting this world right here, Indianapolis, the north side, or even smaller, our workplaces, our homes, our churches. Or schools. Jesus' mission was first to pursue the world. And in the pursuit of the world to identify with it. Look again at verse 7. Paul says, Jesus em emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. As I said, Jesus emptied himself out of heaven into the form of a servant in the likeness of men. And form used here is the exact same word as above when it said Jesus was in the very form of God. In other words, Jesus being God didn't put on humanity like an actor puts on a role temporarily to act out as long as they need to and then to divest themselves of that role and go back to being what they actually are. Jesus, while staying God, also became human. As much as he was God, he is now also human. Fully God, fully man, completely human, having experienced everything that is universal to human experience. Sorrow and joy, hope and longing, peace and fear, contentment, betrayal, suffering. But there's a difference, of course, from knowing what those things are and having experienced those things yourself. Jesus, in pursuing the world, in becoming man and identifying with the world, 
identified so closely with us that he became one of us, experienced everything there is to experience about being human, and subjected himself to the worst that humanity could do. I've mentioned in past sermons that my wife's family really enjoys this uh, Eastern Iowa Tractor Palooza event every year called Old Threshers. And I don't understand why. Uh, it's acres and acres of antique tractors and engines and oil and, and dirt and old farmers um, just getting together to, to talk about steam engines and, and things like that. And, and I, don't under, I don't understand it, but I'm trying to identify my wife's family, and participate, maybe even enjoy it. So I'll put on the John Deere hat and the Pioneer shirt, the Carhartt pants, and the brand name of boots I can't think of right now. I'll put it on and go for a day and then take it off again. Next year I'll put it on and go for the day and take it off again. And as bad as it is to be subjected to, to you know, the best of Eastern Iowa tractor culture that there is, is nothing compared to Jesus becoming man and being subjected to death, even death on a cross. What was Jesus' mission to the world? He pursued the world by emptying himself out of heaven, identified with the world by becoming man, by taking on the form of a servant, by being found in the likeness of humanity. When it comes to identifying with the world, you could even say that Jesus sought out sameness instead of defending difference. Now, he certainly defended difference. That comes through very clearly in the gospel accounts of his life. He certainly very specifically said, you have said this, I say this. But it was never from the context of someone stepping back from the world and lobbing to it its judgments, and its condemnation. Jesus had come into the world in order to say to us, you say that, but I say this. And in his humanity, in human form, then, having compassion on specific individuals, entering into the world and identifying with and having compassion for uh, people in need people who are hurting. So again, we can pause and ask ourselves, well, how, what about us? How do we identify with the world around us? Are we more concerned with defining ourselves by our difference or connecting over our sameness? I was thinking about this as I sat at my desk uh, in my study at home and, and looking out the window, drinking a cup of coffee and looking at all these houses around us and wondering how I define the neighborhood that I live in. If you ask me, what, what's our neighborhood like? Well, I'd be like, well, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's nice, it's a circle, it's roughly middle class, uh, fairly homogenous. Uh, there's a Christian up there, don't know where they go to church. Uh, there's a Christian over there uh, that go to this church plant. Uh, and then there's these Christians here, and they're kind of weird, so we don't talk to them that often. But, and then there's all these other people. Or, it occurred to me as I was sitting there looking out the window, if I see the neighborhood as 
a few people who are like me and then a whole bunch of people that are different. I'm highlighting difference. What if instead I could look out the window and say, that neighbor is the one who lost two wives to cancer and is now struggling with feeling alone past retirement with his kids moved away. This couple is afraid of what uh, the school system they're in has been doing to their kids and how their kids have come home uh, day after day demoralized and on edge and, and they just don't know how to intervene in that school system with, with their children to make it better for them. This couple over here are in their 70s, but back in the day they were hippies and they love it and they're, they're, still, they're still living it and, uh, and just loving life. And this couple down on the end uh, are just trying to figure out what, what happiness is, and they're grasping it in all sorts of different places. They haven't found it, but they're trying. They've tried religion. They've tried uh, intoxication. They've tried um, buying the newest, latest thing, whatever it is, and they're just looking for that thing that's going to make them happy. Or, or this family over here, it's three, four generations in one house. They're, they're broken. They're struggling, but they just want to do it better than the generation before them. Half of these stories are made up, by the way, to illustrate this point that when I, when I sit in my neighborhood or in my office and see the people around me or in my church and see the people around me, do I see a couple of people who are like me that I know and then a whole bunch of different? Or do I see people that I can identify, that I can empathize with, that, that, that I know their story because the difference is not the most important part. The sameness is. The sameness of our human experience so that I can pursue them and identify with them and uniquely do what Jesus did, offer life through sacrificial love. See, Jesus' model of engagement with the world was to pursue it, identify with it, and then offer life through a sacrifice motivated by love which is how the whole story of the Bible begins. Very beginning, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's an offer of life, not because God had to or needed to or in his power needed to create something in order to love it. No, he was, he was three in one, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He exists and always exists in a relationship of love. And so I want this love to overflow into something else, onto someone else, and so he created. And he gave life. And even after humanity ran away from it and rebelled against the peace of the garden, God continued to hold out life through Noah, through Abraham, through Moses, through the kings of Israel and Judah, through the prophets, through the priests, finally through Christ himself. He held out life. Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. John wrote about Jesus in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Not just any life, and not just life stretching on into eternity, but the kind of life we were designed to have in the beginning, a life characterized by joy and beauty, by truth and wholeness, by flourishing, by shalom. God has throughout history been pursuing the world, identifying with it, and then offering us life through sacrificial love in no higher way than through the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Look at verse 8. 
Verse 7, he emptied himself, he took on the form of a servant, was born in the likeness of men. Verse 8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It's the death that Paul talks about in chapter 3. A little bit later, verse 9, this death that brings life. Paul says, I've been found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but a righteousness which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. It's through the sacrifice, the loving sacrifice of himself, that Jesus finally and fully held out and is offering life to the world. It wasn't enough simply to pursue the world as if, going after people, as if just trying to get close to people was going to give them that life. That's not enough. Even identifying with people is not enough. Nor is it enough for us simply to go after people, to pursue the worlds that we live in, to identify with the worlds we live in. We also have to offer life, point to life through sacrifices motivated by love in the same way that Jesus did. You could say for Jesus that his life was less important to him than our life. Our life was more important than his life. And it's that same idea that characterizes the way we move into the world as we try to engage it as Jesus did. Pursuing the world, identifying with the world, and offering life through sacrificial love. This, I offer is a model of engagement with the world that encompasses the entirety of what we read about Jesus in the Gospels. We have tended in the American church to fall into different kinds of ways of interacting with the world. Some of us are very defensive against it, holding the world at arm's length, stepping back, maintaining our difference at the expense of our softness. Others of us very much feel a pull towards Uh, maintaining relevance with the world. And so we step towards it and we maintain our softness but at the expense of our difference. And in the end, we end up with nothing distinctly Christian to say. Uh, Still others of this, and and this is kind of what I grew up in, though there's a lot of overlap between these approaches, we would rather step back from the world and just keep ourselves pure from it. It's too far gone. We're just going to let it go. It's a ship that's sinking. I've got a lifeboat. I'm getting in the lifeboat. You can join me if you want, but otherwise, Jesus will take care of you, and I'm just waiting for him to save me. But none of those things, none of those approaches contain the whole of what Jesus did. As he moved into the world, was present with us, faithful to God in that presence, pursued us, identified with us, and offered us life through his own sacrifice motivated by love. So what do we do? How do we engage the world in a similar way? Well, as I said, we're moving through these weeks in a very specific progression. Next week, Pastor Jeff is going to take us back to Jeremiah 29 and dig into the the parts of the letter that give very specific direction to how we live out our exile in this world. So as we think towards next week and towards that real practical application, I want this week for us to think about how we move out into the world in just three main areas. Consider these these areas, these sort of spheres of your life uh, as you consider what it may look like to pursue, identify, and offer 
life to the world. Our first sphere, and this is where it has to begin, is in here. We have to learn and be a community that pursues one another, identifies with one another, and through our own sacrifice, maintains and builds life within this body. Now, what does that look like? Well, I wish I had some silver bullet or some new fancy thing to offer to you, but I don't. I only have the practices that God has always used and has consistently given us over thousands of years. Within this body, it looks like confession. Confession of sin to one another. It looks like repentance. It looks like forgiving each other. It looks like making a sacrifice of pride, of position, of anger, of rightness, in order to forgive one another, in order to offer life to one another, life that comes after repentance and forgiveness and a restoration of relationship. It has to begin in here. If we cannot and do not know how to approach one another, to confess our sins, to repent, to find forgiveness, and to offer forgiveness out in here, we will never be able to do it out there. We will never be able to move out into the world the way Christ did if we cannot even gather together in his name and act in that way. Within this room, within this body... We must confess, repent, forgive, and believe the gospel for ourselves and for one another together before we can move out into the world outside. So it has to begin in here. But then it also moves to what we do. Not just in here, but also out there. What we do, meaning our tasks, our work, the things to which we are called. Every aspect of our life in which we are engaged in bringing order, in bringing wholeness, in bringing completion, in creating beauty, in exercising goodness with each other and with the world around us. This does not just include what you're paid to do. It includes your work, but it also includes what we do as parents, as children, as students, as teachers, as volunteers, as citizens, as employees and employers, and as members of the body of Christ. Our work, our tasks, are how we, we practically and specifically pursue the world and identify with it and offer life through the things we do and the things that we create and the relationships that we foster and maintain. So within here, we begin and then we move out into our tasks and what we do, what we create, but we also exercise this engagement towards the world where we are within our spheres of influence within any place where we exercise any sort of influence, any sort of power, any sort of ability to, to make change or make something happen. Uh, the fact of the world is Christians will wield power in relationships, in work, in organizations, in institutions. Wherever we find ourselves as believers, we're not necessarily called to go there and um, do Christian things we're called to be there and exercise our power in the same way that Jesus did by, I've already said it a hundred times, pursuing the world, identifying with the world, offering life through our own sacrifices, even the sacrifices of our own power 
in order to bring life to others. And let me just say, as we, as we figure out how to do this, I want to speak specifically to college students and younger. Because what I've discovered is that I learned as a high school student and a college student and as a young adult how to engage my world then. And I'm still trying to do it the same way now, even though the world has changed. We as a body of believers need you to lead us and show us the things that we're missing, the ways we are not engaging the world, the ways we are not pursuing it and identifying with it, because we need you to show us the things that, that we're missing, because they just weren't issues for us, or the world wasn't, it, it was different when we were your age. It was, uh, there were less, less issues, different issues for us to think about and deal with. So as you thoughtfully pursue and identify with the world and offer life to it, please do it in such a way that we can see you and learn from you. And I promise most of us, the rest of us, will be watching to learn from you. Because if we want to engage the world the way Jesus did, we not only have to do it the way Jesus did, but we also have to engage today's world, not yesterday's world, or the world of generations past. All right, let me wrap this up. As we seek, as we look for a model of engaging the world the way Jesus did, it's easy for us to ask ourselves, well, what would Jesus do? And then find within the Gospels just specifically the things that we already want to do and ignore or downplay the rest. But I think if we look at Jesus' mission as, as Paul quotes here in Philippians 2, as we see him pursuing the world, identifying with the world, and offering life through his own acts of sacrificial love, we'll find a mission that's more important than our position. We'll find a, an emphasis on sameness rather than difference from the world around us. Other people's lives will become more important than our own. We'll be able to do, well... What Paul says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let it be so. Let it be so in us and through us. Father, you have showed us what it means to engage our world. You have showed it to us in Christ. You do call us to be like Christ, to ask ourselves, what would Jesus do? Lord, I pray that you would give us the imagination it takes to see Jesus pursue and identify with the world and offer it life. Give us the imagination we need to see how we can do the same in this world, in Indianapolis and Carmel and Noblesville. Westfield and Zionsville and Brownsburg. Here in Nora, in Broad Ripple, 
and all around the city. Give us the same mind as Christ to pursue and identify with the world and serve it in love. In Jesus' name, amen.